time introducing Peter Bolin because he has stuff to say. And I want to get him up here, please. We know him, we love him. Welcome, Peter Boland. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. So I have to follow those guys. Okay. Merry, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. You know, I love Christmas so much, but even better than Christmas is Christmas Eve, because that's what we always did in my childhood home. My mom and dad are from Holland, and so we do it Euro style, which is on Christmas Eve we did the presents and everything. So is there any better day on the annual calendar than Christmas Eve Eve, <laughs> which is where we are, because it's the anticipation of the next two days. So after this morning, it's all downhill. <laughs> I'm here to announce that. I bring glad tidings. <laughs> but seriously, I think of Christmas as this big, giant, elaborate, tribal, communal art project. Kind of like Burning Man for normal people. <laughs> I mean, look at how we're all dressed, you know, and, and, and glitter much. And it's just awesome. Though this, everything gets kind of crazy around this time of year, which suits me fine. And I love peering just beneath the surface of all of these rituals and all of these symbols and all of these stories for, for their deeper meanings and the rich significance that they, that they bring. It's not all just fun and games, right? There's some really beautiful gravitas moving through all of us. A lot of us are feeling a little more emotional than normal. You know, we're thinking of the loved ones we've lost and all of the other travails of this year. And all of that's on the surface now. And, you know, Goethe reminds us that, that everything is metaphor. Everything signifies something else. Everything has layers. So there's the surface denotation, and then there's the depths of connotation that go down and down and down. So sure, in, in traditional Christian churches all over town this morning, they're telling the traditional story of how God became flesh in Jesus so that Jesus could die on the cross and bring redemption to the world by lifting us out of the chasm of our bottomlessly sinful nature. Uh, and, and so that's one narrative, and, and a, very, a very beloved one for billions of people around the world. Um, and we're, we're not competing with that here. It's not a competition. But here and in a lot of places like this, there, we, we, we take the Christmas story in a different direction. And I, and, I, and I love how nearly all of the elements of our modern American Christmas are of non-Christian origin. And, and we've all heard this many times before, but it's just delightful to me how inherently multicultural and global this holiday inherently is. And unavoidably so. It's baked in. So in other words, Christmas has always been a multicultural, diverse, global holiday, an international holiday, a borderless holiday, not the property of one single ideological stance, but a festivus for the rest of us, I, 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 as someone once said. So, you know, there's a short list. I, you've heard this all before. St. Nicholas was a real guy in the fourth century. Turkey claims him. Greece claims him. We'll never know. He's a Greek Turk. And, 
And um, there's, that, that's, uh, where it, it, that's where he comes from. Gift giving, decorating your house with greenery and lights, caroling door to door, end of year parties with a little too much wine, uh, gift giving. These are all Roman customs associated with Saturnalia that early followers of Jesus um, condemned and avoided, but by the Middle Ages adopted. Uh, that's how things work, right? So the Christmas tree, that's German. Um, everyone putting one in their house, that's English. Uh, Santa Claus flying through the air, that's from Norse mythology. Odin, the great white beard. I'm working on my Odin beard. Is it, it, it Give me till next Christmas. Um, but, you know, him flying through the air on an eight-legged horse... How many reindeer are there? Yeah, so all these things have roots that go way, way back. And, and um, the rest of the details about Santa Claus come from that 1822 poem by Clement Clark Moore called Twas the Night Before Christmas. So this guy called Emmett Clark Moore in, in New York in 1822 wanted to write a little poem for his daughter. And, and he sat down to do it. Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even at night. You know the deal. And, and in that poem, Moore, out of thin air, single-handedly created the idea that Santa Claus rides in a sleigh, that it's pulled by eight reindeer, that they fly through the air, that they land on your house, that he gets down through your chimney, and he distributes gifts under your tree, and then he does this thing with his nose, and he goes back up there. That all came from this one dude, this one poet. And it just reminds us that's where mythology comes from. It comes from artists. And he wrote that poem for his kid. And then it got published in the paper the next year. And then now we all memorized it. <laughs> and you know, a common complaint a lot of us hear this time of year also is that Christmas has become too commercialized, it's too much about shopping. But, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a light side to that shadow. That a lot of our friends who have small businesses, they make 80% of their income this month for the whole year. It puts shoes on their kids' feet so they can go to the dentist, so the dentist gets paid. And... A lot of the beautiful aspects of our communal pageant called Christmas come from commercial culture. So I'll tell you another story about that, a story of how an advertising copywriter created one of our most beloved icons of our modern contemporary American Christmas. So there's this man named Bob May, and his young wife Evelyn was dying of cancer. And their four-year-old daughter, Barbara, didn't understand why mommy couldn't come home from the hospital. And Evelyn died just days before Christmas. It was, it was 1938. And Evelyn's long bout with cancer financially ruined the family, because this is America, and that's what happens here. Healthcare bankrupts Americans. And so Bob the widower and his young daughter Barbara had to move to a tiny shabby one-room apartment in a rough part of Chicago. And Bob didn't know what to do. He didn't know, lift, he didn't know how to lift his daughter Barbara out of her grief or how to lift himself out of his grief. And so it was the worst Christmas ever. 
And, you know, like I said, he was a graphic designer and a copywriter, an ad copywriter by trade. And he decided to put his skills to work, and he created a little illustrated book, a graphic novel, as we call them now, a comic book and a coloring book for his daughter. And he went deep inside, Bob May went deep inside, to his own difficult childhood memories about being the odd kid out and about being bullied and about being cast aside and ridiculed and made to feel less than. And then he took the Santa and his sleigh story with the eight reindeer, and he subverted the whole thing. He inverted the whole thing. He turned it upside down. He turned the reindeer into bullies. You know, the cool kids. And he added a ninth reindeer. I think we all know his name. And I think we all know his story. You see, Rudolph had a defect. He was a freak. His very existence was an aberration and an affront to normalcy and coolness. He had this ridiculous weird nose that glowed like a giant red light bulb. And the cool, normal reindeer savaged him for this difference, for this differentness, for this otherness. Even Santa Claus, even leadership rejected him. But in Bob May's little subversive story that he cooked up in his own little brain, in his crummy apartment in Chicago, in that little story, redemption is on the menu and redemption is a dish best served cold. I think that's how the old saying goes. It's been Christmasified. So when Christmas Eve came, in this story, the most important night of the year, it was so foggy and stormy that Santa Claus and the flying reindeer and the sleigh were all grounded and Christmas was canceled. It was destroyed. This was an unmitigated disaster. But disaster, just as in our own lives, has a way of stripping away the surface of things and revealing the depths, revealing what really matters. And on the foggiest night of the year, clarity set in. And it started at the top. It started with leadership. It began with Santa. Santa Claus had an idea. Huh. Let's put Rudolph at the front of the pack to light the way. And suddenly, in an instant, Rudolph's so-called defect becomes an asset. Now, did Rudolph change? No. Nothing about Rudolph changed. Not one bit. But the way leadership perceived him changed revolutionarily and completely. And soon, as Santa Claus' perception of Rudolph changed, so did everyone else's. Unlike, unlike um, tax cuts for the rich, this did really trickle down. <laughs> and everyone's perception of Rudolph changed. Santa set the tone. Leadership sets the tone. Maybe you've been thinking about that lately, I don't know, for a couple of years. <laughs> Leadership sets the tone and everything else follows. As soon as Santa saw reindeer as an asset, all the reindeer who had been savaging him 
were given new eyes. And in a moment, Rudolph went from zero to hero without having to do a thing. And so all of the other reindeer, the scales fell from their eyes and Rudolph was redeemed. And so too was everyone else. Because in fact, this is not the story of how one outlier found acceptance in the herd. It's much more profound than that. This is really the story of how the whole world was redeemed when it saw the world not through the eyes of conformity and competition, but through the eyes of inclusion and unconditional love. And sure, it took a disaster to spark the transformation. It took chaos to create the conditions for rebirth. But again, this story isn't about outer events. It's about inner transformation. It's about awakening. It's about the shift that happened inside of Santa, the shift that happened inside of the other reindeer, that sh- the shift that happens inside all of us when we move from judgment to empathy. And this is indeed a Christmas miracle. But the miracle wasn't finished for Robert May. Robert May's employer, Montgomery Ward. Remember Montgomery Ward? I teach at a community college. My students don't know what Montgomery Ward is. They don't know what a catalog is. I tell them that's when Amazon came in a big book form. So Bob May's employer, Montgomery Ward, was looking for a small gift to give to children at its stores. You know, they set up the department store Santa. They wanted a little handout, and they wanted to create a gift to stick inside the Montgomery Ward catalogs that went out in the mail. And so the CEO thought that May's little book, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, would be perfect for that. So they printed millions of them, millions of them, and inserted them in Montgomery Ward catalogs and distributed them at, at Montgomery Ward stores. And so for 10 years, this story was pumped out at corporate expense by a capitalistic merchant who changed the world by publishing this story and bringing it wide acclaim. And the story obviously took off and became a huge hit. Now, you uh, probably are aware there's a song that, that comes out of this story as well. And, and that comes about because Bob May's brother-in-law was this songwriter called Johnny Marks. And Johnny Marks wrote this song. He said, I, I guess they were having dinner one night with their, with their wives, you know, and, or, or whatever, and this idea was born, like, hey, let's make a song called Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Johnny Marks has written a lot of our great Christmas songs. This is the greatest. He pitched it to Bing Crosby. He, he passed. He pitched it to Dinah Shore. Nah. So he kind of worked his way down the celebrity totem pole of that time, and he got to a dude called the singing cowboy Gene Autry. And Gene Autry's like, I'm in. Let's do it. So Gene Autry recorded it, I think, in 1949. And it became the best-selling Christmas record of all time and the best-selling record period of all time until 1980, I think, dethroned by Michael Jackson. This is a stunning pop art victory story. 
And this little story about this reindeer who goes from zero to hero obviously connects with a lot of us in a really powerful way. And what I'm struck by is that, like, like great artists throughout human history, and like creators of mythology throughout human history, Robert May reached into his own woundedness for the medicine that might heal his daughter and himself. And only incidentally did it heal the rest of us. He wasn't trying to create the perfect public art expression that would fix everything. It was much more intimate than that. And what I'm also inspired by about Robert May, this creator of this story, is that he did not hide from his shadow. He walked right into it. He walked right into his grief, the nightmare of loss that we all are living through because his loss is universal. As Joseph Campbell reminds us, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. And Robert May turned his pain into redemption, not only for himself and his daughter, but for the whole world. And what that song and what that story remind us of is that the ways in which we are different from each other, the ways in which we do not conform to the herd, the ways in which we are wounded, the very depths of our pain, these are our greatest treasures. And don't we need to be reminded of that again and again? These quirks, these wounds, these so-called weaknesses are the healing talismans that, if wielded courageously and lovingly, could heal the whole world. And this is how we are all redeemed, by love. And when we, too, come to see the world with new eyes, as Santa and the bully reindeer did, not from judgment and fear, but from vulnerability and willingness and unconditional love, we are redeemed. We are changed from within by shifting our consciousness. It's always an inside job. And when we raise up others, we are raised. And when we heal others, we are healed. And when we see others, we are seen. And when we forgive others, we are forgiven. And when we learn how to love one another, we learn how to love ourselves. This is the great spiritual teaching at the heart of Christmas, that we are all helping each other become who we really are. We are all giving birth to one another in this manger and especially here in the darkest time of the year, the winter solstice, the womb of the coming of spring and summer, when the whole world is fed and reborn by the bounty of the infinite universe. This is the great spiritual teaching we must relearn again and again and again, that we only get to keep what we give away. I mean, it took Scrooge three ghosts to get there. (laughs) 
And it's the great paradox, isn't it? It doesn't make any sense. What does that mean? We only get to keep what we give away. Well, the mind can never understand this, so don't try. But the heart already knows that if you want something, if you want anything, if you want love, if you want warmth, if you want friendship, if you want abundance, you must first give all of that away freely and without expectation of anything in return. This is, I promise you, what all the wisdom texts teach there. I saved you a lot of reading time. (laughs) And in the beautiful story of the birth of Jesus, we see the spark of God, the eternal source, taking form in the world of embodied creatures, in the world of impermanent forms, as the most fragile, vulnerable form of all, an infant. If that message isn't clear, Let your heart share with you what it knows about that. In Jesus' infant vulnerability, in his nascent frailty, we are called into our own nurturing. Don't you want, I mean, it's a baby. Don't you want to just lean in, keep it warm, take care of it, protect it? This is a beautiful archetype, God as infant. And in the heart of this story, we are shown our own divinity deep inside, beneath the surface of these scattered thoughts and these funny-looking bodies. And in the light of each other's eyes, we are illuminated again and again and again. You know, I look out into this room It's such a blessing to see you all and to be with you all here today in this sacred space. I look out and I see all of these beautiful souls, each carrying our own burdens. Some of us deeply struggling around financial challenges, facing terrifying health challenges, end of life. And these burdens are difficult to bear and we sometimes feel so alone. In fact, most of the time, especially at the Christmas party. Being surrounded with people does not cure loneliness, does it? It sometimes exacerbates it. These are, these are fraught times, this Christmas business. We're trying as hard as we can to lift each other up, but it, it's, it's sort of working. And when I look out at this room and I feel everything that you're feeling, I know that We are surrounded by loving family in this room. And I'm fed by that, and I know that's why you came here today, too, to be fed by that. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for welcoming into your family home this space so lovingly and so powerfully. It's it's a humbling privilege to be invited here to be a small part of this Sunday gathering, surrounded by so much beauty And the sooner I get off this stage, the sooner I get to hear Andy Anderson and Nathan Fry. (laughs) So thank you again, and Merry Christmas, everyone. Namaste. Thank you.